Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Yeah. 
Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am with Chef Neil Frazier, chef and owner of Redbird and Vivian in downtown LA. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for... Sorry, so elusive. Oh, you know, we run on our own schedule. That's good. And, uh... We're getting pinched out, so... We have found that interviews are happen when they're supposed to happen. That's good. That's um, so you've been, you've been in the kitchens for quite a long time. I've been cooking for a couple of years, yeah. Uh, how, how old were you when you got started? Uh, my first restaurant job was in high school. Yeah. Um, my first restaurant job was in high school. I, I raced bicycles, and a guy I raced bicycles with um, also was a chef, kind of got me involved in cooking. He worked at a place called Outside China. It was like a chin-chin ripoff. And I worked there in high school. Uh, weekends, things like that, you know, working the uh, pantry station and the Hunan oven. Uh, I probably worked there maybe 30 or 40 days. Uh, I worked at Baskin Robbins when I was in junior high. Um, and then I started cooking, you know, after my kind of my, kind of put my professional cycling career to bed. What, uh, what made you put that cycling profession to bed? Um, a, you know, kind of a litany of, you know, bad things. Um, you know, some good, some bad. You know, my High school girlfriend got pregnant. Uh, find out shortly thereafter that it was my child, and ended up having a child when I was 21. Um, you know, just not really making it in college. Uh, doing very well as a professional cyclist. You know, making two to three thousand dollars a year, <laughs> and uh, it just I wasn't cutting it. And yeah. I, uh, I was riding down the escalator to the Stone Hills Mall in San Francisco, and I got to the bottom of the escalator. I decided I wanted to be a chef, and I moved back to uh, Los Angeles from San Francisco, and Moved back in with my parents. There was one restaurant uh, in Laurel Canyon at the time. I knocked on the door. It was called the Coyote. And uh, asked the chef for a job. He said, you start right now. Amazing. What year was this? This was uh, 1989. Do you think that someone could do that now? Just knock on a restaurant's door and just get a job just like that? Yes. I think you can knock on a door of a restaurant and get a job. Yes, absolutely. Really? And I wish more people would knock on my door and ask for jobs. So if I were to knock on your door and say I have limited to basic skills, not restaurant skills, where would I start? I usually say, you know, I'll, I'll pay you when you get to the point where I, you know, can afford to pay you. Gotcha. Uh, a little different back then. I was probably making, you know, $3, $3.50, $4 an hour. Um, yeah. You know. Uh, Which went a little bit further back then. Not, yeah. Well, not, I mean, yeah, yes. it, was, it was expensive. We were selling pizzas for yeah. $18 and pastas for $19. I mean, um, you know, the I was you know I was making thirty or forty dollars a day, you know, and you know it's different now with the minimum wage going up. But you know, I, I have a guy in my kitchen right now, no experience. You know, is washing dishes. Um, friend of uh, one of my friends, or son of one of my friends, yeah. you know, family member of one of my friends, um, and he started out at the bottom, and you know, he, he worked a couple days for free, and you know, we gave him a job as a dishwasher, and. He's killing it. You know, he's you know trying to get in there and do the best job he can possibly do. And that's really, when you're talking about trades, that's what you need. You need a good work ethic. You know, the rest we can teach you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's skill and I mean intuition. I mean, to a, at a point too as well, right? I think all that can be taught. I think that, you know, the idea that you know we're not curing cancer in the kitchen. You know, we're cooking food, and I think that I can teach just about anybody. When I mean me, I mean me and my sous chefs and the people who sure. manage in my kitchen. Um, you know, I think we can teach anybody how to be a good line cook. So, um, you're, you're working in Laurel Canyon, uh, and when did, you know, 
it go from I want to do food and it sounded like you knew that you wanted to do it to being like I'm really going to make a run at this like I really want to go all in maybe you think about starting working at higher end places and business um, what made what was that switch for you? I had a, a friend that I met at Valley College mm-hmm. um, I was kind of dabbling in going to college and I went to San Francisco State for a semester went to Valley College uh, in the San Fernando Valley for a couple semesters and I had met a guy in photojournalism class and he also was kind of getting the uh, tickled to be a chef he got a job in a restaurant called Eureka. I was mm-hmm. working at this pizza place. You know, that being said, this pizza place was started by a guy named Ed Ledoux. Um, Ed Ledoux's first job was in Spago. He invented the California pizza. He went on to start a pizza chain called California Pizza Kitchen. CPK. Um, he was a raging alcoholic and uh, sold all of his shares the day before they went public and opened a little pizza place in Lower Canyon. And over the course of the next 15 years, you know, drunk couple bottles of Jack Daniels every day and ended up dying from alcoholism, unfortunately. Woof. Was but, that a, was that a, I mean, given uh, the notorious lifestyle of what chefs could be, especially in the 90s, was that a, a lesson to you to sort of stay on the straight and narrow or was it... I don't know if I was that aware. I think, you know, at yeah. a certain point, you, you know, if you're in a situation that's, you know, not so unique, mm-hmm. I think you, you kind of own it up to like, that's the way it is. I mean, right. you know... I was, you know, talking to my mom today, I'm, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, you know, I've I've lost a lot of friends, you know, I've lost friends to, you know, painkillers that led to heroin, that led to overdoses, to death, I mean, one of my, you know, my second job in Eureka, which was where this guy Dan got a job, which was Wolfgang Puck's second or third restaurant, Um, you know, I was a prep cook there, one of my biggest mentors there, his name was Eric Karp, Um, was a drug addict as a kid, was clean and sober for a very long time. You know, had some back problems, started, you know, taking some medication for his back and got, you know, hooked up with heroin again and OD'd, you know. Um, one of my, you know, early career, you know, just a rock star in the kitchen, just a super amazing guy. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the dragon got him, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough to, um, it's tough to watch. I mean, especially when you're a career chef as the way that you are and you've been through all these big kitchens to see that sort of lifestyle know is this a problem or is this just sort of what's accepted as part of the trade you know I think it's things have really changed you know yeah. I think that um, you know times have changed you know I don't I don't drink with my staff you know I drink with my staff once or twice a year yeah. you know maybe individuals I'll take out to dinner from here to here but you know I don't hit the bar with my staff after work you know I mean that was commonplace when I was a kid you know every chef I worked with you know you got done with service you took him out to the bar. You drove him home in the morning. If they're, you know, you pick him up the next day, drive him back to work. I mean, you were basically chauffeur, Comey, <laughs> you know, um, you know, this was my life, you know, and, um, you know, the people that I got to experience that with, I learned a lot from. Mark Valiani, another guy I worked for, who was the sous chef at Eureka. I worked with him at Spago. I worked with him at, uh, at Rocks. Um, you know, we, we used to go drinking or, you know, almost every night, you know, or we'd go somewhere. We'd play baseball after you know, we, we do all sorts of stuff. That stuff, it just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, that all that stuff has been pushed out of me by, um, you know, it's just being abused, you know, not, not being able to manage my people in that way. I, I have to manage a little more professional. You, and it's, um, you know, you work for some great names. You work for Keller. You work for Wolfgang. You know, I mean, you work there. And um, aside from the, I guess, the discipline, what did you take away from when, Working at those places and sort of like understanding what I meant to manage a team, which is, I think, something that is rare today to find people who really understand how to manage and run a restaurant, the team they work with. 
what did you learn during that era of cooking as you're starting to think about what it would be like to open up your own place? I mean, all, all the chefs are very different the way they, their, yeah. their styles are very different. You know, Wolfgang um, was very kind to people in the kitchen, you know, to, to a point. He was very, um, I don't want to say passive-aggressive, but always kind of like jokingly, you know, like we always have a joke, like, I, you know, Wolfgang would come to the kitchen and he'd see you. He goes, I thought I fired you already. Like, you know, yeah. he would make kind of condescending jokes that were meant to be funny, yeah. but they were condescending. Thomas was super serious, you know, barely cracked a smile, um, very intense. You know, one of my favorite kitchen stories when I was working at Checkers with Thomas down the street, um, he was really upset at this real cook that was this big white kid, yeah. uh, 6'2", 6'3", just strapping white kid. And uh, somehow he got the, the nickname of Sunshine. <laughs> and he, like, served some bad food one time. And uh, I never, this is the only time I lot, you know, saw Thomas really lose his cool. And he basically picked a fight with the guy in the middle of service. He goes, Sunshine, I want you to come over across the line right here on the pass because I'm going to kick your fucking ass. Wow. And he was not joking about it. It wasn't like, if he would have gone there, this guy would have gotten punched in the face. I mean, and the guy packed up his bag and he walked out the back door. I never saw him again. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like Thomas Keller could hold his own in a fight. Yeah, he's a big dude. He's you a know, big dude. Definitely bigger than me. I mean, yeah. You know, he's I got that say, arm length. Where he could probably start hitting you before he could even get close. I think his father was a drill sergeant. You know? Oh, really? He grew up in, uh, from my understanding, he grew up in uh, some of his life in Camp Pendleton. Like he was, he lived. That was he, he was a promotion side. I mean, you definitely get um, that from his kitchens and how he runs them. Yeah. So, um, how long did it take before you felt confident, or before you felt the, that you had to uh, open up your first place, and and what did it take to to get that off the ground? And what I've, year was it? I was uh, working at uh, Rocks with uh, Mark Valiani. Uh, it's a Hans Rock and Wagner restaurant. It was in the Beverly Prescott Hotel, now called the Mr. C. Or C. It's on basically uh, Beverly Will and Pico. Okay. Kind of where Pico and Soto are. Mm-hmm. I was working there. Uh, I was at a bar one night. I got introduced to a guy in a bar. Um, I think it was called, it was run by Trivio Prado. I think it was called. Cha Cha something. It was in the uh, Orlando Hotel. It's most recently the Churchill. Oh yeah. I met a guy through a mutual friend. His name was Steve Arroyo. He was a mm-hmm. like a bar back at uh, Hard Rock Cafe and was working for Italy Cafe selling coffee. And we met in a bar and he goes, "Let's open a restaurant together." Like almost like seeing a girl in a bar and saying, "I want to marry you." Like I, you know, I knew your name and your last name and your mother's maiden name. And I asked you to marry me. And right. Somehow. I said, sure, let's see. Like, what do you got? Yeah. And uh, the next day we looked at the space. You know, felt a little dodgy, but uh, felt like I should go for it. The next two days later, he showed up with a check for $100,000. And I was 20, 25 years old. And what was the name of your first place? It was called Boxer. Mm-hmm. And um, Steve and I opened a restaurant together. I was a little, you know, skeptical on finances and stuff. So I let him hold the whole bag as far as ownership goes. And... Uh, you know, we found a space, no liquor license, bathroom in the kitchen, um, opened a restaurant called Boxer together, literally painted it ourselves, you know, lived in there, uh, you know, it took us, I don't know, several months to open, did very little work, you know, tore the facade off, changed the facade a little bit, painted the floor, you know, there was already a kitchen there, um, there was a wood-burning grill, a wood-burning pizza oven in the back, there were two stoves, very small, 40 seats. And, uh, you know, the first night we did 100 covers, the second night we did 50 covers, the third night we did 10 covers, and then it was just, like, dead. 
just dead for a while. And then, but what changed? Kind of just started building. It was like yeah. you know, it was the overnight success, and you know, we went from having five servers and three bussers and five cooks to having one server and two cooks. Yeah. And we just kept at it, you know, and kept you know. I don't I don't want to say the food got better. I think people started to get to know us a little more. And, uh, you know, we built a, a, a restaurant together. You know, we got, um, you know, great reviews from the LA Times, from the LA Weekly, and it really launched my career as a young chef. And it's funny, like, you know, a guy like Dan Barber from Stone Barns, you know, he was working in LA at the time. He goes, you know, Boxer was my favorite restaurant in LA, he told me one day. And I was just like, how would you even know? How would there? you even know? He was working at Campanile, and, um, but it was, you know, inexpensive, you know, BYOB. A neighborhood and, uh, place. A neighborhood place that, it, it, you know, we, we built it to be, you know, like, you know, Brooke Shields used to eat there. It was a, it became an A-list place. And, uh, you know, we had a good run there. And uh, the guy who gave us the money ended up embezzling some money from some people. And we started getting subpoenas. And uh, I decided, uh, you know, at the kind of the crescendo, the highest high we were doing, I just decided to walk away. I decided just to, you know, quit. I gave my notice. Um, and I, I, I left without a job. You know, I just... Decided that I wasn't going to go to jail for this. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. There was a lot of shady things going on. And I was just like, you know, it's time for me to move on. And, um, you know, I moved on. And I uh, met a guy named uh, Will Cargis, also OD'd very recently. Mm. Uh, and he had a couple restaurants in Santa Monica. He was also partners in Jones. He had a place called Blueberry, which is like this breakfast lunch place. Yeah. And then he was partners in a restaurant next door called Rick's. And, um, I decided, you know, he wanted to be the chef there, and he wasn't happy with the chef that was there, and uh, he fired the chef uh, on a Saturday night after service, and then Tuesday we opened up with a completely new menu and just kind of went for it. Amazing. And, uh, and again, kind of the same thing, you know, slow during the week, busy on the weekends. I ended up meeting my, uh, my wife there. Um, she was the assistant general manager, and, you know, again, made a good run at it, and, you know, cooked some good food, and... You know, it was a kind of a restaurant that was on, I was the third or fourth chef. Yeah. It was like a, you know, a nightclub on the weekends and kind of sure. a fine dining restaurant during the week. And, you know, we do 40 covers on Tuesday night and 400 covers on Saturday night. And, um, you know, had to run in with the ownership and kind of walked out with my chef de cuisine, my pastry chef, and uh, my uh, sous chef, you know, met uh, the... Um, Jimmy uh, Murphy uh, was reopening Jimmy's in Beverly Hills and they were, uh, you know, redesigning it. And so Chris and I got involved as co-chefs in Jimmy's Beverly Hills and uh, remodeled this, you know, kind of iconic 20-year restaurant, um, you know, Bernardo China and Frette uh, uh, Linen and, uh, you know, just gutted the kitchen and uh, opened this restaurant in Beverly Hills and just was absolutely killing it, you know. Nancy Reagan was in there every night, <laughs> Betsy Bloomingdale, um, you know, the who's who of Beverly Hills people. Yeah, of course. New Year's Eve came around, you know, we did, uh, we were doing a million dollars a month in this restaurant. And uh, New Year's Eve went around, we ended up going out uh, camping the night after, you know, went out to the, the woods and, um, you know, no cell phone reception. This was, you know, 2000, the year 2000. Yeah, sure. And uh, came back and I had 25 missed calls on my cell phone. I'm like, somebody must have died and Jimmy's had closed. And I found out later in my career that they basically redid the restaurant so it added more value to it. So when the so when the owner uh, owner of the building came to them and wanted to buy their lease, it had more value. So I was basically a patsy in this whole 
marketing scheme for the Murphys to make money, you know. And I kind of got fucked on it. And at that point in time, I, I kind of decided that, you know, I was going to give it a college try to try, really try to open my own restaurant, raise all the, you know, raise all the money, do my own thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I said, fine. So I left there. I was consulting in a restaurant called Moomba in Beverly mm-hmm. Hills or in uh, West Hollywood. And then, like, three weeks later, 9-11 happened. You know, it was just, like, the worst time in the world mm-hmm. to raise money for a restaurant. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to talk about the road of to you happening your first restaurant and uh, Redbird and all the other restaurants and event spaces that have followed, cool. plus some of your charity work that you do as well. Awesome. Uh, we have a track from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Tonight a blue balloon blew by me on the sidewalk Pushed by the wind past the lampposts and the trash cans I turned around to watch it go and it was gone Am I light enough to lift Oh, am I light enough? Am I light enough to lift? Oh, am I light enough? When I was a kid, I used to climb to the top crook of a tall pine. In the woods, behind the house, late at night. Overhead, A flock of lights passing by Am I light enough to lift? Oh, am I light enough? Am I light enough to lift? Oh, am I light enough? But I don't want to climb anymore I don't want to leave I'm ready to come down now Oh, I'm ready now I can't calm down I can't calm down I'm ready now To come back to the ground I'm ready now to put my weight on a day. Oh, help me down now, help me down to the ground. Oh, help me down, dear. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and if you're kind enough, leave us a review. We would really appreciate it. We are here with Chef Neil Frazier, sitting in the beautiful Redbird in downtown Los Angeles. Um, so 9-11 hits. 
It's a tough time to raise money. 9-11 hits, I, I'm again working at a restaurant that they spent millions of dollars on and uh, it went from being, you know, packed to being empty and... I mean, at um, what point, if this keeps happening, do you, like, look inward? Do you ever look inward or do you just go, I just keep winding up in these bad situations and at some point it's going to hit for me? You know, I don't know. It's, it's like, uh, you know, I, I watched La La Land the other day for the sure. first time. It's like, you know, doing your, you know, your, your personal, you know, pouring your soul out into a, you know, a one-woman show and, ob- you know, all of a sudden it's a flop and you, yeah. you know, notice from it. Um, you know, I knew I knew how to cook. I knew that I, I was tenacious. I knew that I had um, what I thought it took to be successful inside a restaurant. So I just kept trying. You know, I, yeah. I, I think, you know, I raced bicycles as a kid. You know, I sucked really bad when I started. I got really good. I was yeah. national champion. You know, I lived at Living Training Center. Um, I was a good cyclist. It didn't happen overnight. It, it was a lot of work. Yeah. And, uh, that foundation know, is probably helped you just stay focused. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, I really wanted to be successful. I wanted to do my own thing. I, I, I found a space I, I really loved. Um, I talked to my wife and it being, you know, my girlfriend at the time, uh, soon to be after a wife. It was a really great space. And we thought it would take us six months to open. It took us three years. You know, we had to negotiate with the, the current owner. The uh, current owner um, was his, his lover uh, had unfortunately passed away from HIV. And he was running this restaurant that was his partner's restaurant. Mm-hmm. That his partner had started, and he they started dating years into it. Right. It was called Muse. Uh, it had a great track record. It was there for I want to say twenty years, um, and I just thought that was the perfect spot. It was on Beverly Boulevard, which I had spent oh, yeah. you know boxer right down the street. Sure, you know, kind of you know I worked at Revival Cafe. I'd spent a lot of my childhood. I went to Fairfax High School. Um, you know that was kind of my stomping grounds, and I I felt like that was the right space. The rent was cheap. It had a full liquor license, which was really important to me. And we just whittled away at it and finally came up with a deal and, um, you know, ended up, you know, taking out a partner and some investors. But at the end of the day, we opened a restaurant that we were really proud of. And uh, I think, you know, it was a great success. And what was the name of that place? It was called Grace. It was named after my first daughter. And um, what was it like going into business with your girlfriend slash fiance slash wife? How was that? Because a lot of people do not do that and try to have a separation between at home and at work. You know, I'm very fortunate that, you know, I, I've learned through uh, trial and error, uh, more on the error side of how to be uh, supportive of my wife and how for her to be supportive of me. And, you know, I think that I spent a lot of the time early on not really trusting her and mm-hmm. making unilateral decisions that affected us both negatively. Um, and through, you know, opening a lot of businesses together and trusting each other and Realizing that there are certain things she does much better than me, that I just completely divert to her on those things. I don't yeah. second guess her, and because of that, we have, you know, probably the strongest relationship we've had since we've started dating, and we're good partners, you know. But it didn't happen overnight. And, you know, at the end of the day, I work a lot. She works a lot. If she did something different, I don't know if I'd ever see her, you know. Yeah. So it's nice to have some sort of a family business. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, like you know, we want to take time off. We take time off. We're the owners. Like we're not like, hey. <laughs> Hey Ron, can I take Monday off? <laughs> no, asshole, you're gonna, you're yeah. gonna go in there and work on Monday because I, I'm taking the day off. You know, mm-hmm. it's like there's something to be, you know said about being your own boss, and it's very know, nice. It's it's it nice. helps. Yeah, it definitely helps. It definitely helps with uh, relationships, especially yeah. when you and your wife are the boss. Yeah. Um, so I know that the restaurant after that was BLD, but I want to make sure that we get to Redbird because Redbird has really become such a 
defining restaurant of not just your career, but of downtown LA. Um, so, so how did you um, start thinking about that? Because you know, um, BLD uh, and Grace um, were certain types of restaurant. And I feel like Redbird sure. was like the next evolution. Well, we had two restaurants on Beverly Boulevard, very close to each other. Uh, we were doing very well. Um, the writers' strike really put a you know small nail in our coffin that was slowly removed after, and then you know the economy dropped out. And honestly, BLD got busier yeah. because it was a price point restaurant that people could kind of dress up and still go to and feel like yeah. it was fine dining. Sure. And you know we lost almost all of our business at Grace, and we were not making money. And we were still holding on to a sommelier, a pastry chef, a sous chef, because we wanted to continue to, you know, make great food. Mm-hmm. And um, we were not making money, you know. So we did a party out here for IBM uh, yeah. at, at Redbird and uh, or at Viviana. And uh, in the process of us doing this very boring party for IBM, we met Annika Warden, who's our still our senior sales representative here. And she said, "Oh, by the way, we're looking for a restaurant tenant." And we toured the building. And we immediately fell in love with it. And we decided at that moment we're going to sell our restaurant Grace and move it downtown and have Grace to whatever's going to call. We thought it would take us six months. You know, I got a, uh, a loan from Wells Fargo to pretty much cover the whole thing. Lambert's going to give us a million dollars and, you know, slowly started, you know, unwrapping the onion and realizing that the building was in receivership and I needed a guarantor for the loan. And then kind of everything was pulled off the table Put, put back on the table. We were very, again, very persistent with the owners that we were the right tenants, yeah. the right people for the job. And they eventually, uh, you know, changed their tune. We ended up signing our lease. We ended up taking out a business partner. That business partner ended up refinancing the whole building. Um, we went from being one of seven or eight uh, preferred vendors in Viviana to running the whole facility. You know, we went from being, you know, a tenant to being the owner of the building in a very short amount of time. And, you know, six years later, um, you know, I consulted at the Strand House. Uh, Amy continued to work at BLD. And uh, six years after us doing the party for IBM, we opened Redbrook. I mean, do you feel that, and obviously your career is not over, but your career to that point of all the learnings and of all the work and the trial and error led to what this restaurant was? That again. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously your career's not over. Obviously, um, you're still cooking. You're, you're arguably doing some of the best food you've ever done. Um, but do you feel that all the struggles, all the the failures and successes, and what you learned, the evolution you're cooking, led to to what Redbird is? I think so. I mean, I think we, you know, running a restaurant through a Recession really teaches you how to be smart. And I think that when you're a young chef, we opened Grace, you know, we probably had a 35% food cost, we probably had a 35% labor cost, we probably comped a lot because we wanted to be known as that great restaurant. And we probably made a lot of foolish decisions that in hindsight we probably could have made a lot more money, you know, running a smarter business. We've taken everything we've learned from you know, opening restaurants, being successful, not being successful, closing restaurants, and applied all that here. And we try to be as smart as we can possibly be about everything we do. And uh, that means, like, negotiating with our linen company, negotiating with our produce company, 
uh, freezing stuff when we need to, trying to serve the best product we can, not being afraid to charge when we need to charge for something. Yeah. And, you know, being careful on cops, you know, we're, you know, we comp a lot less than we probably ever have. That's not to say we, we're not generous. That's not to say that if you have a bad experience at Redbird, which hopefully you won't have, that we don't invite you back in or buy you dinner. Um, but we're trying to apply all the life lessons we've learned and try to be more successful, try to be better business people, try to, you know, really dig in and try to get the most out of our employees and um, be gracious, be hospitable. Um, really go back to why we got in this business. You know, we're in the hospitality business. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of people have forgotten that. I think a lot of chefs have forgotten that. I agree. You know, we're here to make you feel happy. You know, if you're not having, if you're not happy, I'm not doing my job. No, I mean people. And part of this is part of the culture where going out used to be something special, reserved for one night a week. And now that people go out every night a week, they can forget on both sides, both the the ones doing the serving, the ones who receiving the service. Yeah. Yeah, that um, that it is supposed to be something special. Um, we try to make it special. That's not to yeah. say that we don't have people that just come sit at the bar and have a cocktail and it's an appetizer. A- we want that to be special too. And you know, that's what I really love when I when I have a customer and they come in and they mainly sit at the bar. You know, they might order the same cocktail every time. They you know they work their way through the menu and they're like, "This is my favorite restaurant." But that's sometimes that's the best customer. Yeah. The I mean, it is the very forgotten about um, dedication to a restaurant and people coming back and being irregular. Like yep. the idea of being irregular has fallen so far away from what it really used to mean. Right. I mean, it used to be when I was growing up, we went out to eat at, I think maybe three restaurants, but we always went out to one of three restaurants and that doesn't happen anymore. It's like trying on like a, a new pair of shoes or something like that like yep. every week. So um, we use the term as uh, big game hunting. Yeah. You know, you don't, you don't shoot three Cape Buffalo and I, you know, to a certain point, Grace was big game hunting. You know, it was a big yeah. game hunting restaurant, just like Malise, just like Providence, just yeah. like Vespertine. And we were trying to, we didn't want to be the hippest, trendiest restaurant. You know, we wanted to be a restaurant. You know, we have a 25-year lease. I plan on being here for all 25 of those years, if not another 25 years after that. We wanted to build something we felt downtown was lacking. We wanted to build something that, you know, we, you know, is this the... You know the deepest culinary expression of anything I can possibly do. No, it's not. But I think it's smart. I think some of the stuff's safe, some of the stuff not. Um, but I think that you know we want it to be you know an institution for downtown Los Angeles. We wanted to be a place that would be here for a long time. We wanted to build something that was special that people felt good about being in. But it wasn't stuffy. It wasn't yeah. formal. You know, you can come in here in jeans and a t-shirt and not feel like shit. I can't sit here because the guy next to me is in a tuxedo and he's going to give me stink eye all night. That doesn't happen here. No. It's welcoming to all kinds. Now, before we run out of time, I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about your charity work. Because sure. beyond putting your time into restaurants and things like that, you also do um, what might be one of the best uh, charity events, which just seems like a lot of fun, um, which is the beefsteak. Right. Um, which uh, I know about because I'm from the East Coast. But for those who are not familiar with the tradition, what is a beefsteak? A beefsteak originally was a political kind of friend raiser where a bunch of men in tuxedos would get together, drink a lot of beer, and eat meat with their hands. I mean, it's amazing. Instead, my favorite, though, is the because it used to be served on like stale bread and right. the, the bread stacking at each table and the different patterns that they, they uh, do. But um, you do it with the amazingly funny Eric Wareheim, and it's a black tie event. I mean, it's, it's really nice, it's really proper. Um, 
how did it come, and how did it come about? You know, Matt Salmon, who's a friend of mine, our, our kids went to school for, together for a little while. He, it was kind of his idea. We were originally going to do it at uh, another restaurant on Fairfax. Couldn't make it happen. Um, we kind of, you know, asked Viviana long before we'd signed our lease mm-hmm. that, you know, we want to do it here. And we literally planned it in a week. And when I mean we planned it in a week, I mean Amy planned it in a week. <laughs> and Eric and Matt and Court Cass took all the credit for it and still do. And, um, but it's charity. It's that's, charity. Part of, that's part of it. And, you know, every year, again, we get smarter. Like, you know, there's been a couple of years where we've made a very small donation to the LA Food Bank. And, you know, every year we get a little smarter. We get more donations. We get, you know, we did a, the biggest VIP we've ever done this last year. We had it was 150 huge. people for VIP. And, you know, all the proceeds, uh, all the profit went to the LA Food Bank. And, you know, kind of... Uh, Amy and mine, you know, stance on, on things is, you know, I can't write checks, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a philanthropic person, I'm not there in my career. What I can do, I can donate my time, I can ask people to donate products, we can figure out ways to still give back, and that's what we do, you know, and I, we do a lot of charitable work, we do a lot of charitable work here, we do a lot of charitable work out of the restaurant, um, and I feel like, you know, somebody said, like, I think it was uh, Tom Clicchio said, you know, it's like, Chefs are kind of like first responders, you know, it's like they're kind of the first responders on to like trying to raise awareness onto something. And, and that's kind of true. You know? yeah. and we have a great vehicle and um, we have the great ability to create something that people want to pay money for. And I, you know, what's amazing, some of these charity events we do, you know, we do Alex's Lemonade Stand. You know, they do this auction lot of this all women chef's dinner. And mm-hmm. I, mean, I think last year they raised, you know, $200,000 on two dinners for 10 people, 20 people they raised $200,000. You know, and people really want experiences now. They want, you know, they don't want stuff. They don't no. want, hey, here's a diamond ring for 50% off. Sign they up for want, the, the silent option. No thanks. Yeah, they, they don't want that stuff. Yeah. They want an experience. They want a food and wine event. They want me to come to their house and cook dinner. They want to come here into one of our private rooms and have a dinner. And, you know, luckily for us, we can do that. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's usually a feel good all the way around. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to do my part and to try to help, you know, our community and, uh, you know, our country, you know, be a little more hospitable to people that don't have as much as we do. I agree. Well, Chef, before we go, one last question. With such a long and storied career with all the ups and downs that I think few people will be able to stick with in what is one of the toughest industries, what's the through line been for you? What's one thing that you've seen from the start that's still true today? I mean, what I always say is, you know, I, I wake up every day and try to do a better job than I did the day before. You know, I think that, you know, you cannot rest on your laurels. You know, I think that you have to try hard every day. You know, you can't. You have to be present. Um, you have to set realistic goals. You have to treat your staff, um, you know, well. You know, I think you need to, you know, any, any way you possibly can, through paying them, through, you know, we provide health insurance for our whole staff at Redbird. Um, not because we have to, but because we feel like we should, you know. And, um, you know, we try to make a difference. Some people get it, some people don't. But that doesn't mean that we don't, we stop trying. Like, somebody fucks me over one day, screw them, I'm not going to pay for health insurance anymore. Every day, we, you know, we try to put on a, a fresh face and, you know, try to reinvigorate it to make everybody, you know, be in a comfortable work environment and, you know, hopefully show up to work and, and, and care about what they do. Awesome. Well, Chef, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, if people want to find you online or in real life, where can they go? Uh, I'm pretty easy to find. You know, I signed up for Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff early on. So it's just Neil Fraser, uh, Redbird um, on Instagram. Uh, our website is Redbird, Redbird.LA. 
Um, our event website is viviana.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. We have another track from the Snacky Tunes archives and then a live performance in studio on heritageradionetwork.org.
Hey, this is Chef Eric from Robertus Radio. I love eating pizza for every meal, but sometimes I've got to branch out. Bob's Red Mill makes some stellar breakfast foods. Hey, Eric, the food in your big, bright, beautiful breakfast bowl looks delicious. Thanks. It's muesli. Muesli? Nah, muesli. It's like raw granola. You should try it. Uh, I don't know. My rich daddy buys me quail eggs and foie gras for breakfast every morning. Well, let me hip you on to something else. Did you know Bob's Red Mill is the flagship sponsor of Heritage Radio Network? I bet you if we call Bob himself, he can convince you. Hi, Bob here. Wait, is this the man from the muesli package? Yes, I'm Bob Moore. How can I help you? Uh, Hey there, Bob. This is Eric from Heritage Radio Network, and I'm here with Mike, who I'm trying to convince to try muesli. Oh, I love muesli. Muesli is such an easy way to start the day. I can take a bag of muesli and munch on it in my car and get full whole grain nutrition for everything I need for at least half the day. That is incredible. But what the heck is in the muesli anyway? It has rolled oats, uh, rolled wheat, rolled barley, rolled triticale, and, uh, of course, our dried fruits and the seeds that are so important to our health. It's one of my very, very favorites. After Bob's glowing recommendation, you going to try it? Like they say, try it. You'll like it. All right. Let me at that muesli. By the way, you can find more delicious whole grain breakfast ideas at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. I'll check that out. I'll surf over there. Surf on over, dude. Baby Apaka, welcome. Hi. Hello. Hi. How are Hello. you? Bring the mics to awesome. your face. We'll talk and we'll do all that stuff. Why don't you go around the room, introduce who you are and what you do in the band. I'm Chris, and I sing and play the auto harp in the band. Yeah, and I'm Zach. I'm sorry, auto harp? Yeah. The auto harp, it's a 32-string instrument, and it's traditionally a folk instrument. Wow. And I put it on a lot of pedals that make it sound a bit more like kind of like a synth it's kind of like very dreamy soundscapey feel and you, you didn't want to bring it in today no we don't have it today oh, okay. is that the thing the guy from the love and spoonful used to play probably yeah okay. it's a really ch- it can it be there yeah, yeah i like to i hold it like yeah oh. the so there's different ways that people rock it i used to play it on a keyboard stand and then i just started playing it like standing up and different like ways to rock on my yeah. leg Oh, wait, we got it's one a last guy. More fun. Yeah, I'm Robert, and uh, I play the drums. Awesome. Well, thank you. Today's filling in with the gym bay. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a good-looking good uh, drum over there. So, uh, who are you guys? What do you do? What do you dream? I remember reading your, about you saying that you started singing Walking Around as a seven-year-old. Yeah. Uh, so it's always been your dream. Yeah, I've always loved music and just the way I love to just kind of like see everything around me, like the world, what's what I see and ponder through music, I think is really fun. Like I express everything I see in that way. And I think it's, yeah, it's what I chose as a form of self-expression as an artist. And I love the woods and would kind of like listen to I love Disney movies and The Wizard of Oz and musical films when I was really young and would just kind of like walk around and sing and was always kind of a dreamer and then ended up like moving to the city and meeting Zach and 
learning about rock and roll. And my mom always was kind of a rock and roller too. So like I would listen to a lot of that with her when I was young, like on cassettes. I can see that mashup of. I feel like there's always a scene with a Disney princess <laughs> in the forest singing or yeah. doing something. Um, and who knew it would turn into, manifest itself into an awesome band? <laughs> yeah. I wish that you would, when you put down your influences, like if you like <laughs> Sleeping Beauty or Belle from Beauty and the Beast, you might like our band. Beauty <laughs> and the Beast was my favorite. And I love Fox and the Hound, which that doesn't have music really. Fox and the Hound's a classic. But I love the story. Yeah, I like him with like a Bell Fox and the Hound hybrid. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Give it enough time, I'm sure Disney will do it. Yeah. Um, and so you guys all hooked up and you met. And what what year was this? When did you guys all meet? We met two years ago. Okay. And then, and then Robert more recently. Then Robert, we just is a newer addition, probably. Yeah. Like, when did we meet you, Robert? Do you even know? So as you've met each other, have you added instruments to the band, or did you have other people playing those instruments? Yeah, there were other people playing them before. So sorry, dude, no pizza for you. Yeah, <laughs> we call them the X's, but uh, love them all. Uh, uh well, let's hear a song. Let's 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 bust out a jam. What are you gonna play first? I think we're gonna play a, a song called "Not Strong Tonight." Okay. And all right, here we go, baby alpaca. Here live on Snacky Tunes. Fade into black in the night, the night, 
Nice. Was that our song? Yeah. Playing our song together? Oh. (laughs) It's really nice. Really nice. Perfect, perfect music for a day like today. Yeah, I think our song was referring to another song on on our EP and then also on our record. It's called Run With You and it's like we've been rocking it for a while. Self-referential to the music? Yeah, it was just like something i was thinking about when because the song run with you is just like about you know is very much like about your friends and the way that we stick together and like help each other as artists and as people and just like having fun in the world and like in our lives and then just kind of when you if you lose that it can just be really lonesome and it actually like in my own personal experience losing it after I even wrote that song Run With You and then regaining like friendship again and seeing what it, how important something is and when you realize when it's gone that made me write Not Strong tonight. I think uh, gaining and losing friendships is a big part of New York that a lot of people don't always feel comfortable talking about but it's probably one of the toughest things to maintain in this city is a lot of close friendships. Um, you can have a lot of friends and a lot of people that you know <laughs> And go out and that, but the the real close friendships they take a lot of work, and the good ones can go away and come back. That's that's the other thing people don't tell you is that I think you may not see show, somebody. Uh, I think that's what that show Girls is about. Oh actually. my god, <laughs> that girl that 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 show cuts a little too close to the bone. I would say. I feel like I'm the only person that hasn't seen that. I mean, it, you know what? It's about seen girls it, like it. Right. I'm good with it. It's the most important yeah. show. Ever. Right. It's the most realistic show. That nut. Uh, <laughs> that in True Blood. Yeah, <laughs> that is CSI Miami. It's the uh, Brooklyn oh, vampire sex show without so much um, the vampires. It takes place on a manor in the English yeah. countryside. Um, so you guys live around here? Yeah, I live on William in Williamsburg on Bedford. Where are you guys subletting? Subletting. It's a hot spot. We're yeah, just talking spot. about. It. Are yeah. you guys eating at these new restaurants? Where do you guys eat when you're in town? Roebling Tea Room. Eat at Roebling Tea Room. That's my fave burger. It's a great burger. So good. That's it's a, a great like restaurant. Grease ball, it, yeah. It's a great restaurant in general, yeah. And I just love the burger. And I also love this, like, everyone that runs it and works there. I have you seen Bill Murray there? Good attitude. I never have. No, but my friend has. My friend Rory. Bill Murray's son works at Roebling Tea Room, and he's been known to... Isn't it his restaurant? Does he own it? I think so. I don't know. I think... Uh, Bill Murray you owns maybe a lot. Know? I thought that uh, Bill Murray's son was like a... To sous chef there or something? I don't yeah. even know if he's still working, but the chef there, actually, Dennis Spina, who's been there for years, is, I think, a pretty talented dude. They're opening another place in Greenpoint, too, actually. Greenpoint, man. Greenpoint's on fire. 
Uh, yeah. Do you guys cook a lot? Do you guys cook a lot when I you're love, in the studio? I and... love cooking. Really? Yeah, I'm actually really, I would say I'm a pretty... How are those knife skills? Cook. On a 1 to 10. <laughs> Zach, you should yeah. rate it since you've had a lot of my cooking. I mean, his knife skills are a 10. 10? Up, yeah, they're really... Nice. Oh, yeah, I'm a fast knifer. Yeah, it's amazing. I have slipped up with it and cut myself. Uh, but but that's, not a that's, that's, that's a badge of honor. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Have you guys ever had to write a tour writer of like uh, you know food you want for your dressing room? That would be cool. Usually we don't We're eat too to much before shows. Yeah. Got it. So I'd like, like to have a big writer just so we can see like the fabulous spread, but maybe we eat it after the show. Yeah, yeah single and double stuff Oreos, right? But right. So what do you cook? What do you make? I think I love to make pizza. Really? Yeah. At home pizza is a that's a tall. It's Tall really order. Cool. Yeah, it's and it's so much better. I would, I my pizza's been also compared to like lasagna because it's I like to put tons of stuff on it and in it, and usually like to do a lot of like themed pizzas too, like Mexican pizzas because Mexican food is also one of my favorites. And you do the cheese underneath the sauce. Oh, you? like uh, Chicago style. Yeah, use some under, some on. Sometimes, like, yeah, a lot of a lot. I also like to make braised short ribs. Or one of my oh, favorite that's things. great. Yeah. I love Set it and forget it, right? Cook and stuff is so good. Yeah. Four hours later. It's really good. It's just, I usually find that when I'm braising, I have to have a mid-braised snack of something on hand. Because yeah, the whole house smelling. starts smelling yeah. so good. And you go, all right, I need, I'm not going to make it four to six hours. I need a slice of pizza or something. So yeah. And one of my... One of one thing that I would like advise anyone making at home pizzas is especially if you're a New Yorker is to go ahead and like go to a raised pizza or any of the pizza shops and use their dough because it takes a lot of the time and preparation like out of the cooking and they'll do a much better job than you will at home. Yeah, dough so, is the is the trick. Yeah. And you can stretch those doughs to like two at home pizzas. It's so easy to do, yeah. Yeah. Uh let's hear another song. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Let's play Run With You. Yeah, let's play Run With You. Let's hear what our song is all about. Uh, here we go. Uh, Baby Alpaca again here on Snacky Tunes.
step out with me When the heart is on the line You never say it's gonna be fine You just stand there Thank you, Roberto. That, that was great. Yeah, the uh, the infamous effects button that, that got tucking away from us. That's awesome. Because um, we used to play drops instead of hand claps. Um, so, what do you guys have uh, coming up? What's on What's on the docket? Hey, we have a few things going on. Right, we've actually it's been really fun lately because we're as a band like have been playing a really long time and really like honing in on our craft and like on playing together and working on all of our recordings which we have done in so many different places and it's been an amazing experience we just like finished recording 16 songs wow and like worked in a studio in LA for a long time finishing them all up and really excited with how they turned out and finally are starting to like you know kind of come out as a band and it's been really fun to finally actually Get to play be able out. to play out and like spread the music around and we're about to go to LA and go to Palm Springs in the desert and we're working on like music videos and some of the other like art and creative projects that come along with like being in a band but we should play the show really that we're, cool. playing, we're playing on on the 19th at pianos yeah we're playing on the 19th at pianos so that'll be cool and we're probably gonna you know play a show in LA when we go there too and we're we're about to start releasing singles from our record, and then we're going to release an EP in April that has four of the songs from the record on it. And then we're also will like release our video around then, which is for the song "Wild Child," awesome. which is one of my favorite songs. Are you guys always a three-piece? We've played with in a many configurations. We usually. We're a four-piece, usually we have a bassist that we play with, and then we also play with strings sometimes, so that can turn us into like a six-piece easy or seven-piece. Piano. And a piano, but Zach plays the piano too, so we don't have like an extra person for Some that. Some of the songs we wrote to do like either on guitar or piano, depending on, because pianos are kind of more rare. Yeah, yeah so sometimes. And we were like, you know, live pianos, I mean, real pianos. And who are you playing with? At pianos? We're playing with um, a band called Teletextile. That's a good name. Yeah, <laughs> my friend Pamela is the singer in the band. And, and where I'm, did you get your name from? Um, we're called Baby Alpaca. I wrote a song when I was first like started writing music. I had a sweater that was made out of Baby Alpaca, and I also had like a little like a dog, a black Chihuahua <laughs> named Apple, who passed away. God bless her heart forever. And uh, I was just, like, holding her in the sweater one day. 
And I started writing a song. It was like, would you be my baby alpaca? I would keep you warm from the frigid weather, save you from the storm. Would you be my baby alpaca? I would keep you warm from the January cold and breezy winds. Would you be my baby alpaca? We, or I will keep you cool in the heat of summer, shave off all your wool. Will you be my baby alpaca? We could have some fun. Let's go skinny dipping out on the pond. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. And then I just, I was playing my first show. It was actually in Ohio where I'm from. And they were like, what are you going to call yourself? And I was like, I really like the name Baby Alpaca, like as a song. So I went by that, that one first day and then just kept rocking it. And then now we've become a band of Baby Alpacas. Amazing. Is there, is there a name? You know, it's like a murder of crows. Is there a name for a group of alpacas? Mm. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. A fluff. A flock? A fluff. A fluff. A fluff. <laughs> well, I want to thank you guys. And before we have you play us out, uh, what are the nuts and bolts of uh, website, SoundCloud, Twitter? Your website is babyalpaca.ca. So it's babyalpa.ca. It's Canadian website. Nice. Canadian website. It's a very clever play on WWs by my friend Tyler Love. And... You can follow us on Twitter at Baby Alpaca Love and on Instagram at Baby Alpaca. And SoundCloud. And we also have a SoundCloud. Amazing. So I want to thank my guests, Baby Alpaca, Greg, Joe, Jack, Heritage, Aaron, everybody. It's been amazing. Thank you. Uh, what are you going to play that with? Um, let's play it. And on a high fun note, this song's called On the Road. Okay, here we go. Maybe I'll pack it one last time. Live on Snacky Tunes. Maybe can you turn down that effect a little bit?
We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.